Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Howdy, folks. I can't tell you how great it is to have you back for another creepy installment. I have a very diverse episode lined up for you guys this evening. We have UFOs, aliens, Bigfoot, and even a possible mirrored man entry. So sit back, dim your lights, latch the windows and doors turn the volume up. Things are about to get a little unnerving. Now our first entry of the week should have actually been played last week, but unfortunately I missed that one. That's my bad. So with an addition to the museum workers special from last week, here is Jeff from the state of Texas with yet another eerie entry. Hey Derek, this is for your Museum Historic Places episode. My name is Jeff, and for the last 18 months, I've been the facilities manager for a nonprofit art center in North Texas. First, a little history of the center. The building was constructed in 1929 and served as the city's first electric generating steam plant. After a few decades of sitting empty, it was first renovated in the mid-80s into what it serves as today. It's about 20,000 square feet and now contains three art galleries, a dance studio, various offices, craft and meeting rooms, lots of storage and little nooks and crannies everywhere, and a 5,000 square foot central hall with 25 foot ceilings. They pulled out most of the original steam pipes and floored over the main pit that ran down the center of the main hall which left a dark, musty, creepy basement that's only accessible through a plywood-covered hole in the floor back in the janitor's closet. I've only ventured down there twice, but it's pretty nasty, so I didn't stay very long. Anyway, they maintained a lot of the original fixtures of the building, so it has a really cool, heavy industrial-type look. Even some of the old uh, restored steam pipes are near the entrance. We have various art exhibits throughout the year, and we also rent out various rooms for weddings, meetings, church services, etc. We have a small staff of just five full-time employees and a few part-timers and interns occasionally. I don't recall how this first came up, but early on I was told that we had a resident ghost here named Reggie. I don't know how this legend came about, where it came from, but it's been passed along to new staff members over the years. As you can imagine, an old building like this makes a lot of creaks and odd noises, especially if you're here by yourself at night and it's windy out. 
I wanted to share a couple stories, actually, that I've experienced here. The first, one afternoon last summer, there were only two of us in the building. I was in my office, which is near the entrance and across the main hall from the rest of the office space. Directly above my office is a second level that was added in the renovation that contains a wood parquet floored dance studio, and there is absolutely no insulation between the two levels. So if anyone goes upstairs, it sounds like they're coming through the ceiling right on top of me, even if they walk softly. Now, there are two sets of stairs going up to either end of the studio. We also have uh, security cameras in several key locations, and I always have the monitor pulled up in my office so I can always look and see what's going on in various places. So that afternoon, I heard what sounded like at least one person walking around right above me. I hadn't heard the front door open, and when I just automatically looked at the cameras, I couldn't see that anyone had entered, and I also didn't see any cars other than mine and the other person in the office. So I assumed that it was our education coordinator, because she would have been at some point setting up for a drawing class that she had that evening. A few minutes later, I left my office, and I glanced up the stairs near me as I walked by, and I could tell that there were no lights on over the stairs or in the studio. I would have seen them. So I was curious. I went up there, and there was no sign that anyone was there or had been. So I walked across the hall, and I found our education coordinator sitting in her office, and she said she hadn't been up there at all yet that day. So I could pretty much guarantee though that no one else had entered the building because I would have heard the door I would have seen it on camera uh, this is my second story this happened last December like the first weekend of December in 2019 there was a local charity group that hosts a big holiday event in our building um, every year and on that Friday they had a few volunteers in our building setting up and doing all the decorating uh, back in our craft room, there's a wall of seven-foot-high double-door storage cabinets. The group had decorated them by covering them with wrapping paper. Later in the day, our education coordinator realized that she needed some supplies out of there, and one of the volunteers, and she carefully removed the wrapping paper that was over the cabinet she needed to get into, and then they both taped the wrapping paper back up. As far as we all knew, all of the folks setting up for that event had left the building by 5 p.m. that Friday. Our events coordinator was the last one to leave the building at 6 p.m., and as usual, she started to walk down the back hallway to check the lights and be sure that the door off of that craft room where the decorated cabinets were, everything was shut up tight. As she started down the hallway, she could tell that all of the lights were out already. It being December, it was already dark out, but there's some pretty big windows, so the only light that she saw was a little bit of light like from the street lights out front. But as she started to walk down that back hallway to the craft room, she heard what sounded like wrapping paper being torn down and shredded. She froze. It freaked her out as she thought she was alone in the building. So she quickly turned around and headed to the front door. She didn't see any other cars in the parking lot that shouldn't have been there. So she set the alarm, figuring that if someone was in here and they got out, that it would go off and we'd be notified. So she got out of here. 
Our education coordinator and her intern had been at a special holiday event on the square downtown, and they came back to the building to drop off their supplies around 6.30 p.m. When they got back here and went back to the craft room, they saw that the wrapping paper was indeed all over the floor, just piled. It had been torn down. They were a bit surprised, but again, it wasn't really their problem to worry about. So they went ahead and put their stuff away and they left and set the alarm again. So the most puzzling thing, (laughs) when our education coordinator and intern came in on Saturday morning, shortly after they arrived, the workers came to host the event. And when they went to the back room, the wrapping paper was back up on the cabinets as if nothing had happened. Now, unfortunately, we do not have camera coverage in that back area. And after checking on the DVR to try and figure out this mystery, I found out that for some reason it was only set to save the recordings for 24 hours and then it would overwrite the existing video. But we were all so curious about it that on Monday, I contacted the lead person for the event. We actually had her on conference call under the pretext that we were checking a possible malfunction of our security system. So in a roundabout way, I asked her if everything was okay from when they finished their setup on Friday, and she confirmed everything was just as they had left it. I also asked her if she knew if anyone was in the building after 5 p.m., and she said that as far as she knew, along with herself, everyone else was gone. Now, even if they had had someone still in this building on Friday, there would be no way that they could have left the building without setting off the alarm, and I would have gotten the call from the alarm company and also the police department because my uh, cell phone number is the emergency contact number on our front door. The fact that there were three employees that could all corroborate what they had seen and the fact that the alarm had been set and had been reset and that the two people confirmed that they saw the wrapping paper on the floor, to this day, we really have no reasonable explanation as to how this could have happened. Thank you, Jeff. It's very peculiar regarding the mysterious wrapping paper. Perhaps an experiment is in order. The next time you guys are able to access the building, given your local restrictions, why not apply some more wrapping paper? But this time, make sure to back up those cameras. I'd be very curious to see if something similar occurred. Thanks again, Jeff. And thank you to all that participated in last week's special. And of course, a big thank you to Cam and Kyle of Expanded Perspectives. Had a ton of fun hanging out with those guys. Now to kick off the main show. We begin in the plains of South Dakota and with a story that hints of our buddies, the Mirrored Men. The following was sent in by Courtney. Hi, Derek. My name's Courtney, and um, new to the podcast, I love it. I actually discovered you guys from Paranormal Caught on Camera. I was like, Monsters Among Us, and I'd see you talk, and so I checked it out, and I was like, oh, this is pretty neat. So anyways, I'm sharing one of the episodes with my mom the other night about the mirrored men, just because we like to talk about, you know, paranormal and supernatural things, and she reminded me of a story my um, grandmother had told when I was younger. She had told my mom when they were younger, and 
she would tell us kids and grandkids and stuff when we were younger, and I had forgotten all about it until my mom mentioned it after we got done listening to one of your podcasts about the movement. And I was like, hmm, I forgot all about that. So I'm not sure, like, date, time, that kind of stuff, but it was summer, and it was in South Dakota, and I, I don't think it was on I-90. I think it was on, like, a kind of a backwoods two-lane highway driving from winter. South Dakota was in the middle of the state headed towards, like, the Black Hills area, which is in the southwestern corner of the state. And it was just my grandma and my grandpa, and they're driving. My grandpa's actually driving behind the wheel. My grandma's the passenger, and as they're driving, this car all of a sudden appears behind them, goes around them, and then probably stops maybe 100, 200 yards in front of them in the middle of the road. And my grandma was like, what the heck? And my grandpa kind of got upset about it. And as they got closer, my grandpa, of course, was slowing down because he didn't know what was going on. And all three doors opened at the same time. So the driver's side, passenger side front, and then passenger side back all opened at the exact same time. And three men in black all stepped out at the exact same time. My grandma never mentioned anything about their movements being slow, but she said they were like identical. They all got out at the same time, shut their doors at the same time, and they all had black hats and like black suits, black shoes. And my grandma had told my grandpa just to speed up. She said, don't slow down, don't stop, just speed up and go around them as safely and quickly as possible. And she said, just don't even look at them, Paul. Just don't even look. We don't even see them, you know, except to go around them and just keep going. She was kind of freaked out, she said, in the moment, and they weren't quite sure really what was going on. Later telling us the story, she thought maybe they were going to rob them or something, you know, because they were on this backwards road that wasn't really busy. And it was daytime, though. It wasn't like night or anything. It was the middle of the day. So they go around them, and they keep going. And my grandma's, like, telling my grandpa, Paul, don't look back. You know, keep driving, keep driving, keep driving. And my grandma said she happened to look in the outside mirror. And she noticed, too, that they all had black sunglasses on. And that was it. They just saw them. But, you know, I'm not sure if there was ever any missing time or anything. My grandparents have both now passed away, so I can't ask those questions. I was going to ask my mom if maybe she remembers any other details about the story. Because, like I said, I had forgotten. And it has been years since I've heard that story. I'm 40 now, and my grandma would tell that story when I was probably, you know, 8 to 12, I would say. Because I remember hearing it more than once when we would, you know, sit outside and look up at the stars and watch for UFOs and all that stuff. But she would always tell us a few scary stories and that was always one that I remember her telling a few times so I will ask my mom if she ever remembers if my grandma said that they were missing time or if the men that got out of the car were moving slow but my grandma recounted the story she never mentioned either one of those but um she always called them the men in black and this was before I had even heard the term I think or even before men in black term was coined so anyways Love the show. Keep it up. And sorry I was so late to find you, but I'm glad that I found you. Hope all is well. Thanks. There we are. That's certainly an interesting series of events. But aside from the gentleman's appearance, there doesn't seem to be much connection between Courtney's grandparents' experience 
and a description of the mimicking trio. No missing time, no mirrored movements, and even minor details like odd weather are missing. But I'll tell you this, it does sound eerily similar to Men in Black reports from the 50s and 60s, and Courtney herself even mentions this correlation in her entry. Now for those that only know of the Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones version, the segment from Stuff They Don't Want You To Know will get you caught up to speed. Since the 1940s, UFO witnesses, primarily in the United States, have claimed mysterious men dressed in black visit them shortly after they go public with their sightings. Something seems not quite right about their mannerisms, their stilted speech, and their eerily accurate knowledge of recent UFO events. And they all have the same goal, shutting the witnesses up through gentle harassment or, in some cases, explicit threats. Now, judging from stories from past MIB witnesses... I'd say Courtney's grandparents did the right thing by moving along. Now, before you go getting a false sense of security, thinking that these encounters only happened back in the day, well, if you did, you'd be dead wrong. On May 15th of 2009, two men in black suits entered the Sheraton Hotel on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls. They asked to speak to the general manager by name. Unfortunately for these strange men, the man was off work that day. But, as soon as the strange men left, the employee that dealt with them left this message for his general manager. There's a couple of really strange-looking men that were here, and they kind of freaked everybody out, and they were asking questions about you. And, of course, now I'm getting a little bit nervous, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, they were, he goes, I don't know how to describe them except for extremely odd looking. They were the exact same height. They were wearing the exact same clothes and they had the exact same faces, like they were twins. And he said they were wearing black suits, black trench coats. They were wearing like the old fashioned uh, Federal hats. They had extremely, extremely pale skin. And he said, they came in and they asked for you. And I said, I'm sorry, he's actually not working today. And it seemed like they didn't believe me. So they started to walk around the hotel. And shortly after, they went to the tour desk. But he goes, they freaked me out. And I really wanted to tell you that there were these weird guys in here looking for you. So, of course, now I'm a little bit skeptical and I'm a little bit freaked out all at the same time. So the first thing I do is I run into my security office and I rewound the cameras. And sure enough, there, here comes two gentlemen through the front door looking exactly how he described. Then the next day, I was talking with my uh, tour guest and one of them um, asked to talk to me. She came in my office, the same as my bellman, and she said, I heard that you heard that there were some men looking for you. And she said, they asked a few questions about you, and they said strange things that I didn't understand. And they were talking about governments and conspiracies, and none of it made any sense to me. But she goes, they were very, very scary. She said they had no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing. Their hair looked like they had a wig on, like it was attached to their hat, like it wasn't even real. 
And she said, and the scariest thing, their eyes were so big and so blue that they almost hypnotized me a little bit. And she goes, and you're going to think I'm crazy when I tell you this, but I swear they knew what I was thinking. And she started to cry, and she said one more thing before she left. She said, these men, they didn't blink. Not once did I see them blink. Now you may think it's strange that the men in black would be visiting a hotel manager. But with this little bit of information, that opinion might change. On the night of October 14th, 2008, the general manager, along with another hotel employee, saw what they referred to as a massive black triangle, hovering 500 feet above the falls, headed toward their hotel. As the craft approached the two employees, a powerful beam of light shot from the craft right at our two witnesses, causing them to rush inside, fleeing from the blinding light. The strange men were reported to be there to discuss that very sighting. Now, to be honest, given the amount of time I spend researching these topics, I wouldn't be surprised to receive a visit of my own, something I'm not exactly looking forward to. But thank you again, Courtney, for taking the time to share your entry. Now, our next caller of the evening pretty much went and did my job for me. Please welcome Chris from California to the program. Hi, Derek. My name's Chris uh, from Simi Valley, California, and uh, I've been a big Kook fan for a while, and finally, finally calling in with uh, my story. This story takes place about uh, mid-80s, 85, 86 or so, and I was about that, five or six, growing up in this house, and one night, I woke up for some reason and went to uh, my parents' room, you know, as kids do, and their door was shut. So, for some reason, I just sat down. I just, but whatever, had my Garfield pillow, sat down, and just parked it for a while. And the way that our rooms were situated is that our room was at the uh, end of a, of a hallway. And it's about maybe 10, 15 feet long. It's not a very big house. And at the end of it was the entryway. And so I had a nightlight, as most kids do. And uh, the light kind of spilled out a little bit. So it was a little illuminated, not crazy bright, or not pitch black either. And so at the end of the hallway, was uh, it was still fairly dark, but you could kind of make out some shapes of the living room and whatnot. And so I sat there. And I, at the end of the hallway, all of a sudden I noticed something kind of walk into the space in, in the hallway at the end of the room. And it was a shape that was darker than dark, black. You know, it, it, it stood out amongst the kind of that, that grayish black of a partially illuminated hallway. It was humanoid. It was, it was tall and lanky. And it didn't walk like a, a human would walk in a fluid motion. It was kind of like almost like skipping frames it just it had just kind of a of a, of a it wasn't stuttery but just it wasn't fluid either it was just something was just off with it and it took a couple steps and it stopped in the middle of the hallway and it turned and looked down at me and at that moment i could see two giant yellowy green glowing eyes the other thing too is that its face was not human it didn't have any detail but you could make out the kind of the, the shape the overall shape of it and if you know the shape of those uh, plague masks they kind of like a, that bird like beak and the kind of the big it, that's kind of what it had it had this weird triangular teardroppy kind of a face than just a human and honestly i don't remember anything really after that like i don't remember being 
scared. It just was more like curious. What was weird too is I have a memory of telling my parents this the next day. And I, even then, I chalked it up to being kind of just nothing. Like, I, we, we had like a, one of those sparklet things, right? And I was like, oh, it was the water man coming to deliver water at midnight or 1 a.m., right? It makes no sense. But somehow, even in my, my six-year-old mind, I was kind of rationalizing it. And so that kind of was that. It was just always bizarre. I had a number of experiences in that house uh, where I would actually see full-body apparitions walk through my room. I would have sounds that, would, that I would hear all the time. Well, uh, footsteps up and down my hallway. I would actually get scared and look like at my trying to catch something coming down the hallway, and then I would hear it run away. Um, just all these weird, thick black masses I would catch out of the corner of my eye. It was just a very, very bizarre house, um, especially centralized around my room. Anytime I was in my room is when I would have this weird feeling. And what's interesting is that we had the uh, 94 earthquake, and our house was crushed. Basically, had to be kind of built from the ground up. Foundation gone, things had to be rearranged, and we got hammered. And what was interesting about that is that when the house was put back together and we were actually able to move back in, I had the same room that I had as a kid. But one important difference is that the breaker box coming into the house was moved to the opposite side. So it was originally about three feet from my head where I would have slept. And then it got moved. And what's interesting is that I don't remember having any kind of significant crazy event after that, once that box was moved. So I've been researching things uh, since then about like uh, having issues with uh, EMF fields and whatnot, where you can kind of actually have hallucinations, both uh, audio and visual. And ever since that box was moved, it kind of made sense that things didn't really happen anymore, that maybe I'm susceptible to it. So I wanted to bring that up because maybe you have some listeners out there that don't know that, that there that you can be somewhat susceptible. You know, I'm sure there's various degrees of, of being uh, affected by those fields. But, you know, that breaker box was from the 70s. It was janky. So I'm sure it wasn't shielded in any kind of uh, effective way. The new box we had was further away. And I'm sure, you know, obviously was meeting today's code. So things changed. Fast forward then. And this is where it kind of took a turn for me myself is mid-90s, mid-ish, later 90s, when the internet really started to become a thing as far as being, you know, widely accessible. And we had gathered up enough uh, AOL disks to be able to get online for a significant period of time. I started falling down some rabbit holes of, uh, you know, some paranormal forums and, and things. You remember that, you know, back in the day, things were a little bit more, a uh, little, little more third grade as far as uh, websites and things like that. So we had these forums and I would just find myself on there clicking around. And I happened to fall on one of phenomenon of shadow people. And when I clicked on this, this was a series of drawings that people had done about things that they had seen or, you know, just, just kind of the typical stuff. And one illustration I saw was the exact same thing I had seen in that hallway that night. And it blew my mind. Like, I, I, it was it was here some random person from who knows where saying they had seen this thing and sketched it out. And it was to the letter, the exact same thing I had seen. So EMF or not, that blew my mind. So maybe there was two things going on there. You know, maybe there was something that happened in that house that I maybe caught a glimpse of one night that was separate from any kind of uh, EMF field that I might have been affected by with uh, with all my other experiences with, with possible phenomena. So um, I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. I wanted to, uh, to chime in. Like I said, I've, I've been listening for a while and figured I'd try to contribute. So hopefully you can use this. Keep up the good work and uh, we'll talk soon. Bye. Thanks, Chris. You know, our electricity enters our house about five feet from my sleeping head, so I've often wondered if that is somehow affecting me. We've all heard the symptoms of 
exposure to electromagnetic fields, dizziness, confusion, hallucinations, nausea. But I'm going to toss out yet another option. Now, I certainly can't say I subscribe to what I'm about to pitch, but I think it'll be fun to ponder. Now, is it at all possible that exposure to these invisible waves of energy can help a spirit or activity in general to manifest, be it audibly or visibly? Or better yet, is it within the realm of possibilities that exposure to EMFs allows a person to glimpse another world, plane, or dimension? In other words, can these waves alter our vibration enough to allow us to communicate, if only crudely, with the other side? Well, that's for smarter men than I to discover. I'm only here to ask the questions. So thank you again, Chris, for giving us another to mull over. I just want to quickly remind everyone that I have a workshop full of Monsters Among Us merchandise just waiting to fall in your hands. So adopt a new shirt, hat, tote, backpack, mug, or much, much more by visiting monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash shop. And by making your purchase, you're helping ensure that MAU isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Now our next entry takes us north to the potato capital of the world. Join me in welcoming Bill from Idaho to the show. Hello, Derek. My name is Bill. I'm calling from Franklin, Idaho. This took place probably about 35 to 40 years ago. So I was probably about 12, 14 years old and my family and I went up to Glendive, Montana to a uh, family reunion and where my mom was from. And while we were up there, we, my mom got together with one of her old high school friends and we went up with her family and our family to Fort Peck Reservoir for a overnight thing. Uh, they had a houseboat up there and my mom's friend, she had a, a son that was about the same age as I was, and we decided that we were going to sleep on top of the houseboat. And we were laying there, we were talking, telling stories and stuff like that. And uh, it was it was a clear night. We were watching the stars and all. It was really pretty and all. But then all of a sudden, we see this light. Now, I'm not exactly sure, you know, I'm sort of bad on directions, but I believe that the light started traveling towards us from the east. And it was going, it was just sort of like a, just a bright, bright light. It was traveling towards us and it got sort of like right above us. And I, I don't know how many feet, whatever in the air, but it was far up there. But and it just sort of hovered there for um, a little while. And we were just like sort of dumbfounded by this thing. How I just sort of stopped. And, and then all of a sudden it just shot straight up into the air and then stopped and then just shot again in the same direction that it was traveling. If it was coming from the east, it would have been traveling west. And I don't know, just, we both were just dumbfounded. We didn't know what in the world it was. Talked about it. I do remember um, talking about it to my, my parents and they just sort of thought, you know, just you know, something that us kids, you know, were making up, you know, that we probably were telling ghost stories and stuff like that. But at that time, I wouldn't have been telling ghost stories. I was petrified of ghost stories, ghosts things like that. I didn't even go to my first like attraction haunted house until probably when I was in high school. But now, I mean, I love it. I actually do work in a haunted house and I've sort of gone back and I've heard that there is a base up in Canada 
that is known for experimental planes and stuff like that. And I don't know if that's what it was or stuff. Um, I, I try to explain exactly what it was, and that's sort of what I thought, because that it might be that. But it was just sort of weird how fast it took off going, you know. Uh, I really like the show. I've been listening to it for probably years now. Uh, keep meaning to call in. I've got a lot of different stories. I consider myself a skeptical believer, and I'd like to call back sometime and share those with you. Thank you. I'm starting to see a pattern here. Between Justin and Harley's Glimmerman experiences and some of these more recent drone-like UFO encounters, the state of Idaho is quickly becoming a new hotspot. And this isn't the first time we've heard talk of a secret base up that way. Well, I've got my eyes on you, Idaho. We see what you're doing. Thank you, Bill, for the entry. Let us know of anything else weird takes place up there. Now before we move on, a quick reminder that you can find bonus content on Patreon.com. That's where I release at least one hour-long submission-packed episode per month. In addition, you can find a level that provides a sleep aid in the form of Nights with Edgar Allan Poe. So go to Patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us podcast. A big thanks to all the donors past, present, and future. On to our next unsettling story. The following was submitted by Lisa, here in my neck of the woods. Hi, Derek. My name is Lisa. I'm from Orange County, California. The story I have is from summer of 2016. I was out with a couple girlfriends and their three boys. We went over to Palm Springs to enjoy the weekend. I had suffered heat stroke during the day, so I was recovering at night. And this is a timeshare in Palm Springs where the development is very big, but it, it butts against a mountain range where there's no development. There's nothing on it. So it's about 9.30 at night, and we're all just trying to relax in the heat of you know summer night. And one of the boys says, hey, take a look at this. So I go out to the deck, and we see not far from our timeshare, we're on a second story, not far from where we are, we see like a rectangle, and it's glowing orange. And then we see these two like legs or rays of light come down. At this point, there are only three of us on the deck. And because all of us are going, oh, my God, what is that? Before we know it, all of us, six adults, are just looking at this thing. And it's glowing orange with these orange, two orange rays coming down from the corners of the of this rectangle. And all of a sudden, to our right, we see something glowing. And one of the kids says, oh, my God, is that a creature? I said, oh, yes, probably ice shine. But we're looking. It's not glowing red. And it's like every time the two rays would go down, it would blink twice, and the little area to our right, also up on that hill, would answer back. Now, the weird thing is, I'm hoping there's someone who might have seen something like this, or if it's something that still happens in Palm Springs, but six adults didn't think to get their cameras out. Six adults didn't know what to do. All of us just stood there, and it went on for like 10 minutes, and all of a sudden, before we know it, we're like, well, that was weird. 
We go back inside. The next day, the boys decide they're going to climb the mountain and see what they could find. So the women, you know, the moms, we're just sitting, watching boys climb up the hill, making sure they're going to be okay. They couldn't find anything. We first thought it was like a tower, a telephone tower or something. There was nothing up there. They said there was an outcropping where they thought the eyes would have been. They didn't see anything of anything living. Uh, Some of them might have been camped there. But here's the creepy thing. The next night, we all stood again on that balcony. This time we tried to get our phones out and six people recorded. Six people could not get anything on our phones. I had the basic model of a cell phone and everyone else had, you know, better models. And it's weird how the same phenomenon happened, yet nobody could catch it on film, couldn't catch a sound. And we could hear this weird, like, humming. So I'm wondering if there's anyone else that lives out in Palm Springs that might have seen something like this, because it was really weird. That's my story. And I'm a great follower. This is my first time leaving a message. I love your podcast. I love everything you do. And I will call back again. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Lisa. Coincidentally, the city of Palm Springs sits just outside the so-called Borrego Triangle, a term David Florin and myself coined to describe a barren stretch of desert in Anza Borrego State Park here in Southern California, a swatch of land littered with reports of UFOs, creatures, and even ghosts. And for all you newcomers, and lately there have been quite a few of you, David and I successfully funded a feature-length documentary through Kickstarter, and ultimately through you guys. But the bad news is that COVID shut everything down about a week or two after we were funded. We've been unable to shoot ever since. But like ducks on the surface, it might not look like we're working hard, but below the waterline and behind the curtain, we're kicking away. In the meantime, we're always looking for submissions from that area. And it goes without saying, any true paranormal or supernatural themed tale. So give the hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. And thanks again, Lisa, for sharing. This isn't the first orange glowing triangle to be reported on the show, although this is the first from this area. Now, I vaguely remember a photo being submitted from New Jersey or New York a few seasons back. And I've also linked to a little list in the show notes of sightings from the popular desert oasis. So those are pretty interesting if that's something that piques your interest. Thanks again, Lisa. All right. At the top of the show, I teased a Bigfoot story. And now it's time to deliver. The following was submitted anonymously from the state of Oregon. Yeah, hi. So I'm going to start this off real quick with I have a skipping H impediment. So if I'm stammering or stuttering through it, that is why. So I live in the Pacific Northwest, just outside of Eugene, Oregon. And one night, uh, me and my buddies were down at Clay Creek. It's a camping site about 18 miles into the forest. And it was about 11 p.m. 
we were all just outside there hanging out and our car was kind of taking a poop on us so we pull over and we're pretty deep in the forest by now as I said we're about 18 miles in and so we all get out we're, we're just talking no one's doing anything illegal there's no drugs there's no drinking or anything like that and about 15 minutes later we hear something in the E-line so we get super scared obviously and so we take off the back to act into the car well one of my other buddies stupidly pulls out his 22 and shoots at it so now we get even more scared because we're like we don't know what that was why would you shoot so as soon as we pull back out onto the pavement we see this feature like thing that end up on two legs and this pavement's about a good wealthy wide or so. He looks at the car for about two seconds, if that, then takes two steps, boom, boom, over the pavement. So he's taken six foot strides easily, six, seven foot. And then it's about an 80 degree hillside that he just climbs up no issue on two legs, boom, boom. And I am not kidding you, the whole way home, we were silent, pale as a ghost, didn't know what we seen, did more research about it. And I've always been into this cryptology kind of thing. And we honestly believe it was a Bigfoot because we didn't really get a super good look at it, but it was almost a very dark black color. He had to be and I'm not kidding. He had to be about seven foot, eight foot tall. Huge. Monster-like. And the way he just went over that pavement in one, two was ridiculously insane, is what we thought. So, having said that, I think we've seen a Bigfoot that night. I don't know, but it inspired me to get a Bigfoot tattoo, and I've been doing research about it now ever since that time. That was probably about four years ago now. So anyways, I figured I would call you and let you know. Uh, I have a couple more UFO stories that I can give you a call and tell you about later. But yeah, thank you. Thank you, caller. That's pretty much a classic encounter. Odd happenings, movement in the distance, and a faint glimpse of something large, dark, and unidentifiable. I've been itching to go someplace squatchy myself. Hopefully we can get some of these fires knocked down. I can get out there and do some investigating of my own. Thanks again, caller, for sharing your entry. I'm quite envious of that experience. And while I'm at it, we've had several different fires in our local area over the past couple weeks. The El Dorado fire currently threatens our mountain community. So a huge... Huge thank you to all the firefighters and forestry officials that are helping to keep our community safe. Now, real quick, before we round this puppy out, be sure to extend the pleasure that is Monsters Among Us by joining our social media groups and our pages. We have accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. 
So search, join, and engage today. And that brings us to our final call of the evening. And did I save a doozy for you? This one comes to us from a gentleman in Texas named Jason. And trust me when I say this, you want to turn your lights on. Jason, the airwaves are yours. Yes, this is Jason. This story took place in Arlington, Texas. It's in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. It took place about uh, 2002, 2003, something like that. At the time, my wife and I, we were uh, not married yet, but had two different apartments. We decided to uh, consolidate, save money, and move into one of our apartments. When I moved in with my wife... She told me that um, there was something strange about the apartment. Now, this wasn't an old apartment. It wasn't built in the the early 1900s. It was a fairly new apartment, so it wasn't a creepy haunted place. It was just a a regular apartment. So she told me that she always felt like she wasn't alone or she was being watched. (laughs) I just kind of passed that off. But after a few months, uh, I think, well, the first thing that happened to me is that I was in the shower And I had the shower running, but I distinctly heard something in my ear. And it was like a whisper. It was just there, just in my ear, just a whisper. And I turned off the water and I listened and I couldn't hear it. And things like that would happen every now and then. The next thing that I felt that happened was sitting on the couch watching TV Every now and then, I felt like there was a a depression in the cushion next to me. I couldn't actually see it, but there was something there. And and it happened so many times that I I would actually reach out and run my hand across beside me because there was such a presence of something. The other thing that was extremely interesting is, well, we had a little dog, and he was a chihuahua mix, and... That dog, he would hop off the couch while we were watching TV, and he would go in the back bedroom. And sometimes I would wonder what he was doing back there, and I would walk and look, and he would be standing in the hallway, but looking inside the bedroom, and he always had his head looking towards the closet. And even when we were in the bedroom, if we were sitting on the bed reading or something like that, the little dog, he would sit there and stare at that closet. He would go and sniff under the door, and every once in a while I would hear something in the closet, and I would go in there and there would be nothing there. So a lot of strange things were were happening and pulling us to the closet. The next major thing that happened, I came home one day and my wife said that she walked into our bedroom and there was a silhouette of a man in a ball cap sitting on the corner of the bed, and she jumped back scared and just from being startled by the time she blinked her eyes and looked it was gone but she says i swear i swear that it was there and uh you know i I said well the you know the doors are locked and everything and she goes it she goes "I, i just it had a ball cap it was a silhouette i saw the shoulders and the head he he was sitting there and it was just as clear as day and then as soon as i jumped back and was startled by it it was gone The next thing that happened was I was sitting in the bedroom on the computer. I had the computer desk beside the bed. My wife was sitting on the bed. 
looking at a magazine. The next thing I know, there is a huge pop, almost like a firework went off, and there was a flash. You could smell the like an ozone, like an electric smell, but the light had not gone off. The light had not blown out. And I was like, what was that? What, what was that? And she was like, I don't know. What did you do? And I was like, I, I didn't do anything. There was like a pop. There was a, a, a combustion in the middle of the room. And we could smell it. And it was it had a strange electrical smell. But there was no electricity out, no light bulbs out. After the combustion in the room, the next thing that happened, I was brushing my teeth in the bathroom. And as soon as I rinsed my mouth out and I looked up in the mirror, I saw a movement. And I thought it was my wife. I turned around and there was a silhouette of someone tall, but there was a cap. He had a ball cap on. And I walked towards it thinking it could be my wife. And as I walked towards it, I saw it retreat towards, kind of towards the front of the bed that headed to the closet. So I I went into the bedroom following it, and there was nothing there. The closet door was shut. I went into the closet. I looked all over. There was nothing there. I went into the front room, and my wife was watching TV. Of course, I asked her, were you in the bedroom? She's like, no, I've been watching my show. So the next major thing that happened was I was asleep, dead asleep, and on the outside of the bed, on, on the uh, left part of the bed, someone was shaking me awake. And it shook me so violently for a minute, I, I really startled and, and woke up. And I looked, and there was a little girl in the bedroom staring at me. And as soon as my eyes cleared and I, and I looked at her face, she said, Daddy, Daddy. And she ran to the foot of the bed, ran across the front of the bed, and then ran into that closet and slammed the door. And, and I jumped up and I, and I shook my wife and I was like, there's a little girl in the house. There's a little girl in the house. Get up, get up. And I thought some little girl had gotten into the wrong apartment, but it was so late. It was two, three o'clock in the morning. I got up and I said, hey, hello. I turned on all the lights and I opened the closet door and there was nothing in there. I looked all through there and I told my wife, I said, I, I am telling you, there was a little girl in here. She was just here. Didn't you hear her? She was like, I heard you scream. I heard you scream. I went to the front door. The door was locked. There was nothing. So again with the closet. So months passed and not a lot happened, but we decided to move. We moved into a bigger apartment and we were moving all of our items out. We were almost moved out and my wife went into the closet to look on the top shelf to clear everything out. And she got a chair from the kitchen and stood on top of the chair, and then I heard her scream. So I ran, I ran to the closet, and she said, Jason, you will not believe. Look on top of the shelf. So I stood up there, and I looked on top of the shelf, and I saw a piece of paper that was peeled up off the shelf. It had been painted down by someone that lived there before, or the apartment complex management had painted this piece of paper face down and I slowly peeled it up and realized it was a photo and it was a photo of a man with a ball cap and a little girl and we both got chills and looked at each other and knew exactly not only 
did we read each other's mind, we knew, we felt exactly. And there was something released in that closet. And it was that man with the ball cap and that little girl. And it was a photo, kind of like an old, old photo, black and white, of a man and what seemed like his daughter standing in front of a house. And uh, it was black and white photo. All we could think of was that there was love or something attached to this photo and it wanted to be released and it wanted to be found because someone loved it. I don't know. I'm not an expert. I don't, I don't know about a lot of things about the paranormal, but that's the only thing that's ever happened to us. And that's my story. So thanks a lot, Derek. Good Lord, Jason. That was intense. It takes a good bit to rattle me. But I'll be honest, it'll take some concentration to block out the images of a screaming girl next to my sleeping head tonight. That's chill-inducing for sure. But I'm not real sure what to make of everything. Obviously, the activity in the photo seemed to be attached in some way. But exactly how, I couldn't say. And better yet... Why? The imagination could unravel out of control, pondering all the possibilities. So I'll leave it at that, and ask that you, the listener, form your own opinion. As always, of course. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And that spine-tingling score is co.ag. Thank you so much for listening. And until next week. Tonight's bonus entry comes to us from Dan in the land of Lincoln. Hey, Derek. Uh, this is Dan, located in Northern Lake County, Illinois. I just wanted to give you a story that I had. This was probably maybe around 2005, 2006. So me and a buddy of mine, my best friend at the time, uh, we were hanging out, staying out late. Don't remember exactly what we were doing, but I dropped him off at his house, and then I started heading back to where I lived at at the time. As I was coming down this road, it was pretty late at night. This was maybe like 1.30, 2 a.m. And it was storming really bad. 
it was a bad rainy night. So I was heading down to where I live, and I remember I saw somebody walking on the side of the road. They were wearing a, a yellow raincoat, and you kind of know how when you pull up on somebody, you can see their face a split second right before you pass them. Uh, this is exactly what happened to me, except when this person, when they turned around and looked at me, it looked like their face was literally melting. I'll, I'll never forget this. Uh, I don't know exactly what it was. I wasn't really tired or anything, so I know I wasn't, you know, my mind wasn't playing tricks on me, but right before I passed them, he, uh, he or she looked at me and their face was literally looked like it was melting off or maybe it was someone who was badly deteriorated or something, but I'm not exactly sure what I saw. That's pretty much the only thing that's happened to me. Appreciate your podcast. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Dan. Now, what if I told you that throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even the early 80s, a shadowed figure roamed the back roads of Beaver County, Pennsylvania? Passing drivers would often report seeing the man, his features disfigured, his skin a faint hint of green. And for 50 years, thrill-seekers report seeing no-face Charlie. He was a guy who used to walk the Copanoo Galilee Road at night. The interesting thing about him, he was terribly disfigured and his face was scary. So people would go out there for generations in vehicles to, to look at this guy. But the problem is nobody ever really knew how he got to be the way he got to be. Uh, well, his face looked like it was melted. He didn't have eyes, his lips were badly, horribly scarred, and he walked that road at night, which was real spooky, very spooky, and it started this big legend that passed all around western Pennsylvania, and people started calling him Charlie No-Face. He was referred to as Charlie No-Face here in Beaver County. But for the people of the small town of Copley, Pennsylvania, this man was known as Ray. Charlie No-Face was Raymond Robinson. He lived in Big Beaver Borough uh, his entire life, as far as I can tell, and he lived with family members. In the summer of 1919, when he was eight years old, he and several friends were horsing around an old trolley bridge. They saw a bird's nest up on the top of this bridge, and being curious boys, they decided, well, we're going to go look and see what's in that bird's nest. And Ray Robinson happened to be the one who volunteered to climb up there and look in the nest. Well, when he got up there, or on his way up, he came into contact with uh, high voltage on the bridge and was terribly burned. In fact, uh, the newspapers at the time gave him no chance for survival. Despite his injuries, he lived for a long time after that. And at some point, nobody really knows when, he began walking the Copple New Galilee Road at night. That is the voice of local historian Bob Bowder, and that clip comes courtesy of timesonline.com. What a sad origin. Having grown up in eastern Ohio, no-face Charlie, or as I knew him, the Green Man, was said to haunt bridges or tunnels in that local area. By the time these legends reached me, however, the real-life Ray Robinson would have been dead a good 10 or 15 years. So I'm not surprised to learn there are several discrepancies from what I remembered. So Dan, perhaps like Ray, the person you saw may have been 
out late at night to avoid being called a monster. And when you really think about that, it makes you wonder who the true monster really is. Thanks again, Dan, for the entry. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the show. Take care of yourselves. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.